0: Hello, and welcome to Maine Golf Talk. We are your hosts, Zach Tomlow and Henry Fall. In these podcasts, we'll be discussing what makes Maine Golf so special. We'll be sharing our own experiences and knowledge as both players and coaches. We'll also
1: branch out to discuss hot topics in the game and chat with special guests to hear their stories, all to keep you in the know and help you improve your game. Let's get into today's podcast. We are back on Maine Golf Talk, and we are really excited to have our guest here today, Austin Treslow, uh, 2011 and 2012 Maine Junior Boys Champion. He's currently on the Corn Ferry Tour and has played in uh, several PGA Tour events now as well, including a top 10 at the 2019 Puerto Rico Open. Uh, Austin, where are you and, and how are you doing?
2: I'm doing well, staying healthy. I'm in St. Petersburg, Florida with my family and spending a little bit of time in Orlando area playing mini tour events.
1: Very cool. And what, what mini tour are you are you playing on?
2: The only one open in the central Florida area right now is the Moonlight Golf Tour. Just a small little tour playing on a few different courses in the Orlando area. Most events are single day events with about a hundred dollar entry fee and What's cool about that tour is it's, it's somewhat informal, but it's a good way to stay sharp and get a good co- competitive reps in. And there are quite a few really talented players that play. Even during the PGA Tour season, you'll have guys like Rob Oppenheim, Chris Couch, Brian Gay, Brian Davis, and a list of other guys that will come out and play just to keep sharp during the year.
1: That sounds great. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, you're still able to play in practice, Are you able to Mm -hmm. practice and play at your home course
2: or? Yes. Everything's open down here. Golf wise. Uh, I've been practicing mostly at TPC Tampa. And then when I go to Orlando and play mini tour events, I practice at my coach's Academy, Mike Bender golf Academy. Um, Everything's in good shape and healthy. It's a great time of year down here. It's hot. It's been pretty darn hot March and April, getting up into the nineties in Orlando. So really good weather for golf it's too bad with what's going on with everything else but fortunately for me golf's been easily easily accessed to access so yeah
1: yeah. so i i mean obviously there's there's bigger things in in life than just the sport of golf but when you heard that news that the corn Ferry tour and, and even pga tour and the masters getting canceled i mean how did you handle that and and what have you been doing in the meantime to keep your game sharp
2: The news is devastating. We've never seen anything like this and hopefully there never will be anything like this again. It's, it's been frustrating for me because this is my first year getting good status on one of the major tours and I was really excited to continue to get starts this season and work my way up the points list. So there are a lot of unknowns right now with the corn ferry tour. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that they'll start back up by late May, early June. And one of those events would be, you know, the, the work in Maine open. There's a chance that that event might be the first event back from the coronavirus. And that'd be pretty special for, for the state of Maine because that event would get a lot more hype.
0: Yeah. Uh, that would be huge for the state of Maine and for you guys to get that tournament under wraps, but, uh, You know, we're talking about that one. Have you played Falmouth before? I have not. I mean, I've been to
2: Falmouth. I have not played that course. What's that course like?
1: I think it's – there's some target golf. You know, the front nine is a little bit tighter, tree line. Back nine, I would say, opens up. But because it's more like sort of farmlands, but it doesn't necessarily play open it can get a little bit windy on that back nine and, um, mm-hmm. you know, a couple holes that come to mind, like the 10th hole is pretty difficult, but uh, I hear they are lengthening it. I want to say three or four or 500 yards and then, uh, you know, building some new tees and, and updating some irrigation and stuff. So it's a good course. They had the main open there and, you know, they've had some big tournaments there and, and I enjoy it. I think it's a good challenge.
2: Nice. I was, ge- I was assuming they were going to add some distance to it they seem to do that on for most of tour events these days.
0: You know,
1: I, I want to say from the tips prior to these changes, it was probably like 68, 6,900. Um, so I know they're probably looking to get in that 72 to 74 range. Mm-hmm. So
2: spe- Speaking of lengthening courses, I don't know what, what your take is on the golf ball, but I saw an interesting uh, idea from one of the instructors I follow on Instagram the other day of a uh, professional play b- limiting to uh, 10 clubs instead of 14. And I think that that would be kind of a more fun, creative way of going about it than necessarily dialing the ball back.
1: Yeah. I've never heard of that idea. That's interesting. You know, I guess it would make for some more, uh, you know, shock, shot making where you got to, you know, uh, take distance off clubs more. You're not, necessarily taking full swings all the time
2: too yeah and once he showed what the bag would look like for an average player and it would it would only be about a six degree gap between each club so it's really not that significant if you're a skilled player you know you're, you're a six degree difference if you're a long hitter can make quite a big difference but if you have good feel it's not that big of a deal. I mean, most, a lot of guys, not a, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of guys on tour have about a six to five, six degree difference between wedges. I don't think it would be that huge of a transition, but it'd be interesting to see what types of clubs people play. Um, yeah, yeah, no doubt.
1: That, that'd be, that kind of sounds like a fun tournament to have. You know, they do the one club challenge, but the 10 club would be kind of cool too.
2: Yeah, the the guy who runs the Moonlight Tour down here has been talking about doing a four or a three to five club tournament. He hasn't decided what number he likes, but but it's it's very interesting. I don't know if you guys have gone out and played with a few clubs, but you can really learn a lot from ha- having to force yourself to hit different shots that you're not used to hitting in practice.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that. Uh, I actually have a set of old hickories that uh, I have mm-hmm. six clubs, uh, persimmon driver, uh, two iron, four iron, six iron, eight, and wedge. And it's a great way to kind of work on the game. I mean, those those clubs you got to hit perfect just to get the ball going where you want it to. And, you know, I, would, I wouldn't even mind seeing something like that, you know, bring it back to the old days and see how you guys could play with a uh, persimmon driver.
2: Yeah, it's uh, they're almost training aids. They're so difficult to hit relative to what we have today.
1: Yeah, I think I saw Ricky Fowler practicing with those at one point. That's funny. Yeah,
2: um, I know Jordan Spieth did a. There's a little YouTube clip of Jordan playing with the old equipment. I think he shoots around eighty for eighteen holes. It was kind of interesting.
1: So, I mean, you mentioned the the live and work in Maine Open, and we're we're excited to to see you come up and play in that. Assuming this all takes gets taken care of, and we flatten the curve here. But um, tell us more about your experience in Maine. You know, summering up here in in Isleboro, I believe, and playing at Tarantine. Is that correct?
2: It is correct. Yes.
1: And, you know, what was that like? You, I'm guessing you were up here like six months of the year and then you played in the MSJA Junior events. And so if you could just walk us through, you know, growing up in the game and, and how, how that's kind of, you know, helped your experience in, in becoming the player you are now.
2: Yeah, Maine's been really kind of the beginning for me with golf is my dad's side of the family played golf. My mom's side didn't really play any golf. So my dad introduced me to the game, but my dad's family has deep ties to Maine. They've had a house on Islesboro since the late or the mid 1890s. And that golf course is about the same age as they've been there. And my great grandmother was absolutely obsessed with golf. I mean, she lived up there all year round and she would play any day where it was physically possible to play. She would play. And in the summer, I was able to play golf with her, my grandfather, and my dad. So we had four generations in one group, which is pretty rare. I don't know. I don't know of any other many other people that can say they have played with four generations of their family in one group. So yeah, I mean, but I, since this has been in my dad's family for that long, you know, I go up. I've gone up every summer that I've been alive, and unfortunately. Now that I've been playing professionally, I, I am not able to be up there as much because I've been touring all the time and competing, but I've spent oh, a huge part of my childhood there. And it's my favorite place to be in the world. I don't think you can beat Maine in the summer. I really don't. I think it's just the feel of the coastline, the feel of, you know, this, I even like the smell of the lobster traps, like just kind of the the sea smell when you're on the water out there and it's unbelievably beautiful and it's going to be so so cool to bring some attention to the state of Maine especially in the golf industry because people don't really think of golf when they think of Maine and Maine has some really cool quirky golf courses there are a lot of little quirky designs but they're they're beautiful and in the summer the smell of the pines and just the feel in the, in the air is incredible so it's uh it's been really special I, I i don't know how much different my life would be if i hadn't had Maine in it Um, it, I can't imagine my life without having Maine in it it's my favorite place in the world honestly really is
1: yeah I think you just summed up what you know this podcast is all about is sharing our our stories and experiences about Maine golf I mean it's it's definitely unique and special so you win the 2011 and 2012 Maine Junior Boys uh, Championship can you talk us through that and, and, and winning those events, what that
2: did for you? Yeah, the, those events gave me so much confidence. I hadn't won many junior events before those. And ha- it was kind of the you know, first events where I'm playing with a with a lead and a title of a state championship. And I just I had a lot of pressure. I, at the time, it seemed like a lot of pressure. It's kind of funny when you look back on your junior career you wish that you didn't put as much pressure on yourself as you did because you felt like it was do or die back then. But now you realize, you know, it's a junior event. You're not going to, you're not going to go bankrupt if you don't want a junior event or anything, you know? So it's, uh, it, it was, they were great experiences. The second year, I believe I won by quite a few and I really kept the pedal down. And that's a tough thing to to do when you're leading a tournament is keep the pedal down. I actually, I just finished up the Moonlight event. They had a two-day event out in Orlando the last two days, and I won that. But I was I shot nine under the first day and had three-shot lead. And yesterday was the last round. And I started the day off well. I was 300 through seven, and I think I extended my lead to six. And then all of a sudden, I kind of felt like, oh, I need to just, you know, play, you know, simple fairways middle of the greens not necessarily chase birdies but the conditions were relatively easy yesterday and you need to chase birdies and I gave up my lead and I ended up having to win in a playoff so it's it's crazy to to, to think that you can lose a lead that big just by taking your foot off the pedal but that's what I did in, in May in 2012 was I kept my foot down and I I got the victory and that was at the time the most proud moment of my life
1: Oh, wow, that's awesome and congrats on the the moonlight tour win that's yeah thank i'm sure you. that i'm sure that experience will help you moving forward as well um so yeah you win the main junior boys championship two years in a row and did you ever feel like okay well you know summering in, in maine did you ever get the feeling like people didn't Know who you were coming from Florida, or you know, you know, why is he up yeah. here playing golf and winning? Or
2: yeah, there was definitely a bit of that. Um, my my peers, the juniors my age, we got along great, and it was it was nice. But I think there were a couple parents that were like, "What's this Florida kid doing up here?" <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I it was I enjoyed it. I played a few other main state events that were closer to Islesboro. So I could just take the ferry over in the morning, drive to the course, and and play those. But overall, it was, I was I felt welcomed, and I also I went to Maine twice to qualify for the U.S. Amateur. I
1: was at a, uh, the ledges, or where was
2: that? That was the ledges, I believe. It was the ledges. The ledges, I think, maybe both times.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny because. You won the main junior probably – I'm trying to think if I won it in 2009. So you won your first one a couple years after me. And when I was playing college golf, everyone was like, oh, this Austin kid, he's incredible. He's coming up from Florida. He's winning all these events. And I was like, I I don't think we ever crossed paths or met, but I I definitely followed you a little bit for a while there. And part of the reason I asked you to come on the podcast is because – You know I'm a huge fan of of Mike Bender as well, and I see videos with you on there, and I'm like, you know, there you are, and and now you have full sass on Corn Ferry and doing these incredible things. So um,
2: yeah, Mike, I'm glad you're a fan of Mike. Mike's a first of all, he's just a good human. He's a down to earth, good good old Iowa boy. You know, very simple, um, kind, good guy. But he is a golf genius as well, and it's not even just not even just the mechanic, the mechanics of the game. He he really is unique in the sense that he was a player. There aren't that many top instructors that actually played on the PGA tour, and so he brings he brings a different um, perspective to it that I think is is rare in golf. And he's uh, you know helped me tremendously. I've been working with him since I was eleven
1: oh, wow, I didn't know you were working with him for
2: that long. And No, I'm sorry. Yeah, I would drive, my mom would drive me over. It was, Mike's Academy at the time was, from New Smyrna Beach was an hour. So she'd drive me over once a month and I would see him. And so, I mean, in the summers, I wouldn't see him. So I probably would see him about eight or nine times a year from ages uh, 11 to 15. And then... 16 17 18 I moved to Lake Mary and I I went to Lake Mary prep and worked at practice at his academy and saw him all the time that was huge and that's when I really like my game really started to take off about my junior year high school like really just improves dramatically
1: yeah I mean I can only imagine I mean based off everything you're telling us and your passion for the game and and work ethic in combination with a a mentor and coach like that. I mean, that's just, that's outstanding. I mean, for, for our listeners at home, Mike Bender is probably most known for coaching Zach Johnson. Uh, He's won Mm -hmm. two major championships and, but he, you know, he's very active on social media and he's got some training aids and all that stuff, but he, he is, he's quite the instructor and, um, you know, a good mentor of mine, his name's John Hickson. He actually played in a, in an event, with Mike Bender and John beat him out on the last hole. And <laughs> I believe they went and, and shook hands and, and Mike said, man, nice plan. You know, I congratulate you. And, and John looked at him and said, Hey, can I get a lesson from you? <laughs> <laughs>
2: so
1: it just shows you how, how, how good of a player Mike Bender is as well.
2: That's a, that's a cool story. I guarantee you, Mike, Mike would know of that if I brought that up to him because he remembers every match because he's one of the most competitive people there there is. And so if he lost, I know he remembered it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so and then let's talk a little bit briefly about your college experience. It it looked like you were at the University of Virginia for a semester and decided you know what, I'm mm-hmm. gonna transfer, is that correct?
2: Yeah, it was it was kind of a uh, an un- unusual situation, but I, I went to University of Virginia, and I before I went there, I realized that I had it so good in Central Florida if I wanted to be a professional golfer. You know, I had Mike Bender. I had tournaments to play in. I have year-round great weather, and uh, also the kind of the comfort level of I know what I'm doing. I've already dialed in the system there, and I went to Virginia a little bit, hesitant to to change and I realized when I got there that I wasn't fully in it it's an incredible program Bowen Sargent at UVA is a great golf coach as far as college coaches go in terms of his knowledge of the game and his ability to teach his players and the school is a beautiful school but I just knew that it wasn't right for me Um, so I, I came back home I enrolled in at Rollins College which is a small liberal arts school in Orlando and I was able to schedule my classes there, so that I could practice and and compete during the day, and then go there after 4 p.m. And so I was I was able to get my business degree there uh, by doing that for four and a half years.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it, it sounds like just to your point, you had a great setup there in Florida. Why change and? So, I mean, it's, it sounds like you had a very successful career at Rollins. And then when was that, that point where you said, you know what? I, I really want to make a career out of this. I want to turn professional and play for a living.
2: Oh, well, so I uh, I turned professional May of 2015 when I was 19. So I didn't play at Rollins. I, uh, I was thinking about playing at Rollins, and the biggest reason I think I, I to have played at Rollins is, one, you have a good schedule you can play, and two, if you can get an uh, athletic scholarship, that's great. But Florida has this uh, state-sponsored program called Bright Futures that your parents can pay into when you're born, and it can really cover a tremendous amount of your education in college. So my parents paid into that when I was younger. So then now that I was going to Rollins, that Bright Futures could apply towards Rollins. So I was paying very little for college. So I didn't need the athletic scholarship to really afford schooling. So since I was going to school so at such an affordable cost, I could then play professional events and try to make some money on top of that. I didn't need to play college golf to afford college. Uh, so I was very lucky in that sense. That's a huge thing with college sports is the biggest advantage of, a, of, you know, going to a, a top D one school is you cannot, I mean, no one can afford to play the schedules they play, to fly where they play, to play the courses that they play. And to get to receive the coaching that they receive, like the amount of money is, I mean, it's totally worth it. If you're going to D one school and D two and too, I mean, any division, but for me I was in a unique position where I could go to school at a low cost and I was in Orlando which is one of the hubs of professional golf so I could receive my education and play with professionals at the same time so that's what I decided to do it's it's an unorthodox way of going about it but I really I really enjoyed it and it helped me get better
1: yeah no it sounds like and I apologize I you know I was looking at your time frame and I was like turned pro in 2015 Um, I didn't realize it was right during your, um, your time at Rollins. So, and then it looks like you, you know, you went and qualified for the Asian tour, beating out uh, Mm -hmm. a 200 man field, a shot 23 under.
2: Yeah, that was incredible experience. I, uh, I'm glad I'm not over in Asia right now though, during all this stuff. Uh, It's good to be back in, back home. It, 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 it was an incredible experience going over there and winning that event. And then I was really excited to play on that tour, but a good thing, but also something that made it more stressful in terms of managing being back between here and Asia was I, I got an exemption into the Puerto Rico Open because I won a Puerto Rican Golf Association event. And after getting that exemption, I got 10th. So when I got 10th, I earned... A decent amount of FedEx Cup points, and now that I had FedEx Cup points, it was tempting to just stay in the U.S. and do Monday qualifiers because if I could earn 50 to 50 to 70 more points, all of a sudden now I can be playing in the Corn Ferry Tour Finals.
1: Then you shoot a final round 66 at the Puerto Rico Open with the hole in one.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. <laughs> That round was unbelievable. I and it, it wasn't unbelievable because of the score. I was playing so well all day and not making putts, just not putting well at all, but hitting the ball so beautifully. And you know, I bogeyed 14. I uh, the goal was top 10. My buddy, my buddy who's caddying for me and I are talking at the beginning of the day or at the beginning of the week. You know, if we can get top 10 and get to Honda. That would be incredible. That's our goal for the week. It's a high goal, but we know we can do it because I've played that course a bunch and I feel comfortable out there. So we went out there that final round knowing we needed a low score and we got off to a good start, but then I just wasn't making putts. And I get to 14, I bogey 14, par 15, which was a relatively easy par five. And then it seemed like my chances of getting a top 10 were were done. I knew that if I birdied in, I most likely wouldn't get in, but there'd be a chance. So I was still, you know, there was still some thoughts of oh let's get three under on these last three to get the top ten. But I we get to sixteen, which is a really tough par three. The pin was tucked over the back left corner over a bunker. You can't land it on the green online with the pin and keep it on the green. So I was aiming at the middle of the green and I just pulled it. And I pulled it right in the stick right at the stick and it just dunked in the cup so it was like <laughs> it was like the luck it was the luckiest shot of my life it but it just felt almost like right because all day I was playing so well and just wasn't feeling like I was you know really executing and then I hit it to eight feet on 17 and missed it and then on 18 I made a about a 21 footer for birdie which got me to 10 under total and ended up being enough to get tied for tenth.
1: It's awesome, you know. I think I think you got to change your story though on sixteen. You got to say it like Jack says <laughs> yeah. it on seventeen at Pebble, where he's like, "Oh, I changed my swing midway down in you know in my downswing." <laughs>
2: yeah, it's it was incredible. The number was perfect, and it's funny. My my caddy and I will joke about that. It was a one hundred ninety-two yard shot, and so like when we get that number anytime else, we're like, "Oh, this is our number right here." And it's there amazing how many times we, it was, it's amazing how many times we've hit it so That's close awesome. on with that number since then.
1: <laughs> so then you go to the Honda Classic, what the very next mm-hmm. week? Is that
2: right? Yep, the next week.
1: And you know, I've been down to that event, and man, is that a brutal golf course! And it gets windy. How did you? Was that your first ever PGA Tour event?
2: That was my first ever, yeah, PGA Tour event that was in Puerto Rico. Oh,
1: I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. uh, uh, with the off week there. And how how did you handle that experience? I
2: was really nervous. I think I was mostly nervous because of how difficult the course is, but it was it's just a whole new feel. Puerto Rico is, a, is an off-site week where there's a WGC event going on, and uh, there aren't really many fans at the Puerto Rico event. There aren't the, the big tents that you're used to seeing at huge events on the PGA tour. And, uh, it just, it doesn't have, it has more of a private feel to it. It's not like going to one of these bigger events where there are just people all over the place and just has incredible energy. So going to Honda was a completely different animal. And that golf course is so difficult. Where if you're not hitting it well, you just can't. You just can't save yourself out there. You, 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 there's no way around it. You have to hit it well. And the first round, I I started on the back nine, which I think has some scarier holes to it. And I made par on my first hole. And eleven is, I think maybe the. I think it's the hardest hole in that course. You have to hit. It's about a it's a 445 yard par four, water down the left and then water through the fairway on the right on the tee shot. You could hit driver as far as you wanted down the left, but it's only about a 15 yard wide fairway and it's water on both sides. So most guys lay it back about 270, and so if you lay back to which is what I did to the 270, you then have about a 175 yard shot over water to a firm green, where if you miss it short or right, or left, or in the water, and if you miss it long, it goes down into this, this deep uh, valley over the green, and it's a really tough up and down, and so the, f- the first round, that's my second hole of the tournament, there are so many people around, I've, I've never seen so many people watching me play golf, and I had a great tee shot down the middle of the fairway, and I had a good number, but I just chunked it a little, and I hit it in the water, and I ended up making triple. So, starting off with a triple early in the round out there is terrifying because at that point, you're like, I don't have much. You know, at the beginning of the round, you're not going to make many birdies. The key is just making pars. So, it's hard to come back from three over. And I was three over or four over through four, and I ended up getting it back to even uh, on my 15th hole. But then I made a double and a bogey finishing up. So, I shot three over, and then I, and I shot even the second day and missed a cup by on one which was a huge disappointment.
1: I was just going to say, you know, I I think, you know, what you said about limiting mistakes, you know, golf is a game of of misses in a way and you know on that on that course uh PJ National, I mean, it, like I said I've been down there and I saw Padre Harrington hit in the water on uh 17 the year he won. Man, I mean it's just it's just brutal, it's a tough course.
2: It is. There's no letting up and having it be my first tour event, it was pretty, pretty scary. (laughs) I was really nervous, but I, I enjoyed every second of it. If you love golf and you never get sick of golf, there's no better job than the PGA tour. So that's the goal, you know, and, and being there experiencing it that week, it solidified that in me where I'm like, this is what I want to
0: do. So Austin, you talked about uh, uh, Monday qualifying. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly tell our listeners a little bit about that experience and how difficult it is to, you know, just make it onto the, onto a tour event?
2: Yeah. So when you make a cut in a PGA tour event, you don't have to do pre-qualifying. Most Monday qualifiers, you have a pre-qualifier the week before, sometimes two pre-qualifiers to get into the Monday qualifier and so the Monday qualifier is the qualifier that gets you in the event for the week but usually guys have to go there a week and a half in advance to play Tuesday or Thursday to then get into the Monday qualifier and then qualify through the Monday qualifier to get into the tour event fortunately once you make a cut you don't have to do the pre-quals. so that made it much more easy for me to just go do Monday qualifiers for the rest of the year knowing I have to do pre-qualifiers but a Monday qualifier will take four players for a PGA tour event every week, unless it's an invitational event. And the, of these four, I mean, these are four players for a one day event and the, the field sizes can vary a little bit. I'd say on average, they're about 90 guys and these are great players. These are PGA tour players with conditional status, corn Ferry tour players. Latin American tour players, Canadian tour players, and other professionals that are highly skilled. So on any given day, any of these people can qualify and you have 90 skilled players playing for four spots. And so it's it's a very difficult thing to do, but you know, what happens is after 9 holes a lot of these people already know they're out because you know you got to play a good round. And you just have to think of it in the sense that you know, after nine holes, half the field's probably out. So it's really down to about 45 guys on the back nine, and four out of four, four out of 45 sounds a lot better four out of 90. It's even probably better than that. But you can't even really think about any of that. That's the whole irony: is you, you can't fixate on finishing top four. You, have, you can only focus on what you control, and what you control is committing to each shot and really committing to the process that you've practiced so much day in and day out. And uh, it's a lot of pressure because you know you have to play well. It's not like a four-round event where you can afford to have one round where you don't play perfect golf. But it just does seem like you have to play perfect golf to qualify into a tournament.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems so cliche. It's like one shot at a time. And, but, you know, it really rings true. And, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up. But real quick, looking back at at your PGA Tour uh, experience at the Honda Classic, uh, you know, you said that that was kind of the one event where you'd be like, man, I really know this is where I belong. And you missed the cut by one. I know it's tough, but, you know, I'm looking at the leaderboard right now. You tied Adam Scott. You beat out Andrew Landry, Scott Piercy, Sean Stephanie, Pat Kazire. I mean, these are all PGA Tour winners. Jimmy Walker, major champion. So, you know, maybe you don't look quite at the leaderboard, like, in that depth, but is it nice to kind of see, you know what, I can play out here. Does that give you that extra confidence?
2: Absolutely. And it's one of those things where you you don't really truly believe you can until you see yourself do it. Um, you'll have people tell you that you can do it, but who really cares what other people tell you? If If you don't believe it, it doesn't matter. So seeing my, you know, getting that top 10 in Puerto Rico was huge because all of a sudden, uh, it really, my dreams are really starting to seem like they can, they can really come to fruition. And, Port, and Puerto Rico was amazing, but the Honda Classic made things even more real when I was there as a Monday qualifier. I, already, I got to know a few of the players, and I kind of just settled into a real tour environment. And um it's it's the best place in the world to be if you love golf.
1: Yeah, and I it, you know, I'm sure it helps um you know, being able to communicate with your coach Mike Bender, not only just about some swing changes, but also that, that playing, that competition and you know, all the things we talked about, one shot at a time and staying in the moment.
2: hmm um, mm-hmm. for sure. I was I was actually real bummed. I did not get to do a practice round with Zach Johnson for, for the <laughs> Honda. What's really tough about Monday qualifying, what I from my experience, because I played in four last year, and if you're Mondaying into those events, you're playing great golf. There's no doubt about it. Like If, if you're playing well enough to Monday, you're playing well enough to easily make cuts. But the problem is you Monday, and then you only get one practice round on Tuesday. So you're playing a a course that a lot of these guys that have played for years on tour, they're like the back of their hand. And all of a sudden you have to gather all this data and information on a course in one round because the Wednesday there's a pro-am and unless you're a bigger name guy on the PGA tour, you're not going to be in the pro-am. So you only get to see the course once before you play. And that was the most difficult thing for me to adjust to is, I only saw PGA National, even though I'm from Florida, I'd never played it before. I only saw it once before I played the tournament. And that's a course that where experience would help you tremendously.
1: So you very much value that that extra time on the course prior to the event.
2: I, it's You know, it's funny. I I'm not very good at practice rounds. I think they're boring and they take forever. But when you've played a tournament on the course, it's different. I see. You know, it's – you know guy a lot of those guys at the Honda maybe maybe they're rookies and it's their first year out there but a lot of them you know they've they've been going to that venue for years and years and years and they've played that tournament in tournament, or they have played that course in tournament conditions so many times that it's a little bit more comfortable but having been my my first event on that course I've only seen the course once it made it more nerve-wracking for me.
1: Sure yeah I mean I even just a couple names that come to mind are Ricky Fowler and, and Daniel Berger who live in that area. And I know Daniel Berger mm-hmm. there and they probably played that course a hundred times. Even. Yep. So, you know, that, that experience can be invaluable for sure. So just real quick, going back to, to Mike Bender, I, I mean, at this point, what is your relationship with him? In regards to your swing, is it just kind of fine-tuning, just the fundamentals or what he considers fundamentals? Or are you guys still making big changes?
2: Mike still helps me. I saw him last week. We work together on a lot of the same stuff that we've always worked on. That's, that's the amazing thing about golf is it's just like you always have your tendencies and you can just get them a little bit better every day and you're you're doing better than most. But we, we work on a lot of the same stuff we've been working on for ten years. It's kind of frustrating, but it's uh it's just the way it is. In terms of the fundamentals, in terms of grip, posture, alignment, weight distribution, head spine tilts, all sorts of different stuff. I kinda know what he likes. So I don't really and I focus on the fundamentals probably more than anyone I know. I mean, I really dial in my setup and so I know what he's looking for so we don't really talk about that that much he does he doesn't like my grip though he's trying to get me to get it more in my fingers I grip it more towards more in the palm on both my hands so he's trying to kind of try to get it more in my fingers which it feels really uncomfortable for me and I just I'm not going to end up doing it just because the grip I think is the most difficult (laughs) thing to change for a good player especially because that just changes the timing of the fit of the face at impact and I mean, as you guys know, the face is the most important thing at impact. Path is important, but if you don't have club face awareness, that ball is not going where you want it to go.
1: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's, it's funny how there seems to be a sort of argument going on in, in the sport about whether grip is a fundamental or not. And it's interesting to hear your perspective on it as uh, as an advanced player as you are.
2: There isn't a grip that works for everyone. A lot of that is just, the human element of what feels good to each individual, you know, you have a guy like Mo Norman that hit it straighter than anyone in history. That guy gripped it in the palms. I mean, he had grips that were going right through his palms and he didn't, he had barely any club face rotation through the ball. I mean, he was like a, he was like the iron Byron, just producing the same, the same numbers every time. But then you have guys like, you know, you got Zach Johnson's got a really strong grip. You got Matthew Wolf that's got a really weak grip. There's no one formula and that's kind of the beauty of the game is you have a few people that, that a lot of people, that a lot of students of the game idolize, but just because they have the beautiful golf swing doesn't mean it's the most efficient swing.
0: So let's, uh, let's talk about some, uh, you know, you're talking about unique swings and everything. Uh, I got to hear the story about this one hand chipping.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. So my senior year of high school, I started chipping poorly. In hindsight, it was it was mechanical, but I thought it was mental. And so, I at first just started working on the mental element of it, of just trying to, you know, focus on relaxing, you know, breathing down, being soft, and just using the bounce and focusing on good contact. But that wasn't helping. And so I realized I needed to change the mechanics of my chipping. And one of the drills that I've read to help use the bounce is the one-handed, the one-handed drill with the right hand. You know, if you just take your right hand put it on the club and just have a really soft right arm with a kind of a little bit of a right elbow bend and you look at the target, you could almost feel like you're, you're playing cornhole and tossing a beanbag. And if you have, if you have that sensation, it's so easy to use the bounce and finding the balance was the most important thing for my chipping. And so I started it as a drill, and it improved my chipping so much, but I wasn't able to chip that much better with two. So all of a sudden, I'm chipping solid in practice, but then I'm going on the course with two and not chipping very well. So uh, you know, I came to the conclusion I need to just kind of dedicate most of my practice time with my chipping with one hand and then you know i got more and more confidence with it and then i eventually put it into tournament play and i've been working a lot on two-handed still but i'm very comfortable under pressure with one hand i chipped in i chipped in a 30-yard pitch shot at the john deere last summer with one hand
1: wow that's insane (laughs) i mean I, i i think that's just awesome though i for our listeners at home i I found as a as a coach with chipping, you look at the average golfer and their handle is usually too far forward, and they don't have any way of mm-hmm. exposing that bounce. If anything, they're just using the leading edge. And I've posted numerous videos on this, and I you know Cameron Smith comes to mind. I posted one of him chipping oh, just with yeah. his he just chipped. with his right hand. And mm-hmm. I, I just He's a great
2: that. model for anyone.
1: Yeah, that's great. And then uh, but then you. Then you have this bank
2: shot off of a driving range net that goes viral. Oh, my gosh. That was uh, – we were just killing time. That was all that was. My <laughs> caddy and I were on the range practicing on Wednesday, the day before the event. And they what they, do, what they typically do is they clear out the range so only players that are playing in the pro-am can use it. And so they kicked us off the range. And left of the range is this – First of all, this is at the country called Bogota, which is an incredible facility, not just for golf. I mean, they have horseback riding, they have soccer, tennis, all sorts of other outdoor sports like, you know, swimming. And this is it's a beautiful property. But left of the range was a soccer field and a little almost like nine hole pitch and putt course. And so we went to the pitch and putt course. No one else was out there. And. I was trying to hit flops over the net because the net was probably about 50 feet tall. And I was just, I hit a couple of cool flop shots over the net, but then I like hit a few that didn't get over the net. And then once they hit the net, they almost went in this hole that was near the net. And I realized that that'd be a really cool video. So my caddy worked on finding the right camera angle to get me hitting the shot just in case I made one, not really expecting to make one and after it probably took about 23 tries 24 tries and it went in on that and it, it was really cool to just be able to share that with other people
1: it's funny in this in this time where we're all sort of quarantined at home i'm seeing trick shots everywhere but man oh, that, that I might know, be it's that might be the goat right there that might be the goat of trick shots
2: <laughs> yeah it's it was, it was pretty cool um I'll have to go back. If I'm playing out there next year, I'll have to go back and try to do it again.
1: So we'll, we'll make sure to post that video on our Instagram at main golf awesome. for this podcast. We we love that shot. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your, the foundation that you're working on, the Dave Thomas foundation for adoption?
2: Yes. Uh, uh, two years ago, I did a birdies for charity where I had, where I pledged and had other people pledge a certain amount of money for each birdie I made to go to the Dave Thomas Foundation. Um, my my mother's a guardian ad litem, which means she just she helps manage affairs for um, children that are in very uh, unfortunate family conditions, whether they you know need to find foster care or need to find a, a relative to take care of them um, or just have, you know, someone to represent them legally because, you know, their, their parent or parents are incapable of doing it. So I've always, I've always kind of had a passion for helping children because adults, I have no, I have sympathy towards many adults, but children really are, they, they don't choose this, this life, you know, they're a lot of the time it's their parents have made some really bad choices and are irresponsible. And it's, it's very unfortunate, but I just believe in helping these kids. So that's what I did. And I'm, I'm still going to, I'm going to donate some money to them this year too. I don't know how much kind of depends on, on what, what I can really make this year. Unfortunately, a lot of the country's not going to make a lot of money this year. So it's it's tough tough times, but I I know that if I am if I do apply for uh, any assistance, I'm giving at least half of it to Dave Thomas. So
1: that's great, and I know Zach and I are rooting for you for 72 birdies every tournament. Um,
2: oh my god, that'll help yeah. your cause. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah, you know it's it, that that would be incredible. If that happens, the golf definitely needs to change the uh some of the rules <laughs> yeah
1: um, that'll never happen though <laughs> so we we have a little section here for the end just a few more questions we call it wicked fire not rapid fire but wicked fire and uh, okay just, i like <laughs> it yeah three quick questions um so number one your favorite course in maine that you've played
2: sam oh
1: i like that okay Uh, Number two, your golfing idol growing up.
2: Tiger Woods.
1: That's a shocker.
2: (laughs) These aren't wicked. These are easy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That was uh, was a no-brainer for me. (laughs) All right. Number three, if you were in Maine tomorrow and everything was open, there was no quarantine and restaurants were open, everything was open, what would be the number one place you would go to outside of Islesboro
2: probably Arcadia Park I haven't I haven't been there yet that's like the one thing in Maine that I like I'm dying to do that I for some reason haven't found time to do
1: really yeah it's only if you're right across from Canada it's not very far. a couple it's, hours yeah
2: no it's not very far either my my family's gone hiking up there but that's that's probably the number one thing I mean I spent so much time on the coastline that uh that's the one thing that's kind of on the bucket list I haven't done or drive up to caribou I kind of want to do that too
1: (sighs) so you haven't played Kibo Valley then no oh man that's yeah if you could get up there for a few days I mean Acadia is just amazing and Kibo Valley is one of the oldest courses in the country I know Zach has the facts on that one. Was it the eighth oldest? Eighth oldest. Eighth oldest. Okay. Wow. Yeah. it's wow. Old. Yeah. Old school Donald Ross, I believe, and it's just uh, it's fun. It's, and you're Oh, that's right awesome. The, yeah, you're hitting right into the mountains of Acadia, Cadillac Mountain, and it's really cool.
0: So
2: it's it's Donald
0: Ross. Well, so so here's here's the thing. We got in trouble for this last time, so I have to jump in. So give. <laughs> Because the people at uh in at Cubo make sure. Uh so it's actually Herbert Leeds. But uh Ross did have a small hand in the design, but it was actually Herbert Leeds who did the full design. So shout out okay. to Herbert Leeds who you know.
2: Yeah, shout out and you know what would be really cool is if we could or if you guys could, you know, go to some of these courses and and really just be the the postered guys for really exposing how incredible golf in Maine is, you know, yeah, I don't think of Maine, Maine isn't a place that people go for golf destinations. It's a place they go you know, to, to go to the, you know, the coastline and, and kind of explore that. But Maine has so much more to offer outside of the coastline. I mean, some of these golf courses are, are really fun.
1: No, I absolutely agree. And that was kind of the thinking behind Zach and I getting together for this podcast, you know, we we've played a fair amount of the courses in the state and whether they're on the coastline or up in the mountains, you have a a great selection and um, courses that just aren't really seen that much of outside of our state. I think, you know, Sugarloaf is, Sugarloaf and Sunday river probably draw the most attention from, Mm. um, from the rest of New England and New York and even some, states outside of that, but um certainly you know, we're trying to kind of spread the word about what makes Maine Golf so great and having guests on like yourself that can, can share in that is uh we're really excited about it. So
0: awesome. Well Austin, we uh we appreciate you taking the time today and talking with us. You know, if uh if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how do uh how do they get a hold of you on uh, social media?
2: yeah dm me on instagram that's that's the easiest way thank you guys very much for
0: having me on it's it's a lot of fun so if you guys got any questions shoot uh Austin a dm and as always go check out main golf talk on instagram ask us any questions and uh, we will see you guys next episode